Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks. Podcasting superior. What antiques are we talking about this week? Well, I wanted to talk about things, stuff, antiques. Um, <laughs> That's a bold new direction for our podcast, Dee. I don't know how it's going to go over. I know that it's going to be really questionable. I'm a little nervous. But all right, let's see where that goes. All right, I need you to, uh, what do they say? Screw your bravery to the sticking place? (laughs) Screw your courage to the sticking place because we're counting on Gaston to lead the way? (laughs) Yes. uh, They didn't just say it in Beauty and the Beast, but yeah. (laughs) Why would I consume any other media, D? That's a fair question, and you shouldn't have to. (laughs) Like, LeFou is gay now, so like... Thank God, finally. The rep we need. And he's looking so skinty, hunty. God damn it. <laughs> what antiques are we talking about? <laughs> Antique and vintage Christmas cards. Oh, these are a delight they are. Yeah, and I feel like we get a lot of people who are excitedly sharing with us their favorite extremely messed up or like creepy Victorian Christmas card. I mean, those are my fave because I'm extremely on brand. And so I set out thinking that I would like to answer that question about why they're like that. And I decided to also talk about the rest of the history of Christmas cards. Sure. I'm going to set the scene for you. The year is 18... Now what's a card? Oh. Well, it's something Yugi uses to win duels. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right, all right. We do have an episode on postcards. We do. So if you are like non-jokingly confused about like what a postcard is, what that means, we do have an episode on that for you. Yay. But I need you to transport yourself with me. Let's go. Let's live in this moment. Yeah, sure. The year is 1843. Sometime this year, Charles Dickens has published a Christmas carol. Oh, God damn it. This motherfucker. (laughs) Now, why are you so angry at Charles Dickens and his Christmas spirit? I will never forgive him. (laughs) I will never forgive him for what he has done to English literature. And Christmas specifically. I don't understand. But why does why does he vex you so? His goddamn smarmy, cloyingly sweet little sugar plum fairy view of the Victorian world and his love of the smell of his own armpits. <laughs> I hate him so much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know how the word Dickensian came to mean something dingy, dirty, desperate poverty because the bulk of his work is essentially the hallmark movies of the Victorian era. And I feel like that's where my biggest problem comes in. Yeah. Apologies to everyone listening who genuinely enjoys Christmas. (laughs) It does come to sort of embody sickening whimsy. Yes. Charles Dickens is the epitome of Victorian sickening whimsy. So he's done the damn thing, is what he's done. He's done a crime against me personally. So, while the year is still 1843, we are Sir Henry Cole, public servant. We are. Collectively, the both of us are Sir Henry Cole. (laughs) Everyone listening right now is Sir Henry Cole. He's kind of like a Dread Pirate Roberts thing. And in that moment, I swear we were Sir Henry Cole. (laughs) I swear we were all Sir Henry Cole. Sorry, you were saying... (laughs) So now Sir Henry Cole had worked with the brilliant inventor Rowland Hill and helped with the reformation of Britain's mail system and the introduction of the uniform penny post. I love the uniform penny post. Yeah, Henry Cole had a place in that. Sir Henry Cole, you are forgiven for making me think about Charles Dickens. It's not, he doesn't think about Charles Dickens whatsoever. Oh, thank God. Now, Sir Henry Cole loves art and come Christmas time, he has a lot of letters to write as a very important fancy man. And he doesn't want to do this. He says, no, I would like to not do this anymore. I have 45,000 people to write Christmas cards for. And here's the thing. Here's the thought. Fuck this. (laughs) 
So he asks a friend and painter named John Calcott Horsley, which is the most British name I've ever heard. (laughs) An incredible name. My new name. Yeah. I'm filling out the forms tonight. (laughs) Yeah. Same. I'm going to be John Calcott Horsley too, I guess. To illustrate a grand vision he has of not having to make personal cards any more, God help him. So he has this guy create an illustration. It is a jolly family raising a toast. And on either side of this large family having dinner, toasting at the plate, are silhouettes of people helping the poor. Because I lied when I said he didn't think about Dickens. Dickens had quite the effect on how people thought about Christmas. As an avenue for helping the poor? As an avenue helping the poor, except that it kind of seemed like it turned more into reminding people that the poor needed helping through art while not doing anything yourself. Yeah, it's a lot of that is Dickens... The thing about Dickens is he didn't want to help poor people out of the goodness of his heart necessarily. He wanted to help poor people because he was raised as a very fancy lad and then his father lost all of his money and Dickens had to get a job instead of going to school (laughs) at the age of like, what, 10? Yeah. And he was extremely bitter about this because this sort of thing wasn't supposed to happen to little boys like him. So through that, he gained an empathy for impoverished white men. Which I guess is a good starter stone for empathy. Like, that's a good first step in your empathy development pyramid. But then he didn't really go anywhere with that. It would have been a wonderful starting point. He just kind of stayed at that step. And then in his very last work, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, you see the beginnings of empathy for people who aren't white men. And unfortunately, he had a stroke in the middle of writing it and died before he could finish it. So I'm assuming the concept was just too challenging for him. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, yeah. But back to making art instead of writing letters. This image was printed on a postcard and it said, A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you, alongside a blank to and from field. And Sir Henry Cole said, I've done it, I have. I'm going to just put my name and their name on each of these and send them out. Damn. And since he had so many friends in the high-end elite British London circle, everyone kind of caught on. They got these postcards and they were like, hot diggity dog. What if I didn't do any of the very meager work I do as an upper class person? (laughs) What if I didn't even put in the most basic effort? (laughs) What if I didn't even do that? Sir Henry Cole had revolutionized not doing any work for the rich. (laughs) Incredible, sir. (laughs) Well done. Is this why he has a knighthood? (laughs) He actually was the first curator of the Victorian Albert Museum. Oh, well then. Yeah, he was the first uh, curator, so I guess he did some stuff. Sure did. (laughs) And as all things kind of tended to do, there was a bit of a trickle down in popularity from the elite. Over time, although this was still very expensive as lithography was a very involved process, mm-hmm. postal reform and slowly advancing print technologies, coupled with higher literacy rates and Britain just really leaning into consumerism, would slowly but surely jettison Christmas cards into becoming the norm for every family. Yay! In 1860, Charles Goodall and Son, a visiting card publisher, started producing visiting cards specifically for visiting at Christmas. They were regular visiting cards and had simple designs such as a twig of holly or little flowers. So cute. Around 1850, across the pond in Roxbury, Massachusetts, Louis Prang, yes, that Prang, 
launched the American Holiday Card with little postcards that had flowers and birds and maybe a couple of words of text that said Christmas good, actually. Now, when you say, yeah, that prang, do you mean the very prang who makes inferior art supplies? Hey, 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 watch your mouth. I'm just saying there are no Crayola. Okay, I don't know. Apparently this is a hot take. A prang colored pencil is worth so much more than a Prismacolor colored pencil. Okay, the colored pencils are probably on point. The crayons, however need improvement. Yeah, the crayons are not awesome, but oh, the colored pencils, they have so much less wax and just deliver like such a nice solid smooth pigment and Prismacolor can bite my dong. I mean, Prismacolor went down the tubes. It's true. So yeah, that's that Louis Prang. He really believed in the advent of mass printing as a way to disseminate and uh, (laughs) I believe the phrase that he used was to educate on good taste. (laughs) Which is sort of like an elitist version of like bringing art to the masses. I mean, yeah. But like in a kind of like a snobby dick way. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like that's accurate. Yeah, that's a pretty pretty good assessment of what he's done and said there. (laughs) Oh, good good. (laughs) It's just very funny. Louis Prang is a very funny man. The final transformation of the Christmas greeting card would be, in 1915, a Kansas printing company founded by Joyce Hall and his brothers created a design which was, instead of a traditional postcard, the print folded book style in the manner of greeting cards we are accustomed to today. Oh my god, what a journey. Pretty exciting. And as time went on from the Victorian era, we're pedaling our bicycle backwards, we're going back to 1840, As time went on, the Victorians demanded more and more elaborate Christmas cards. They were often printed on paper cut like lace called lace paper, which will blow your mind. (laughs) Actual fabric, silk and satin, or thick paper adorned with silk fringe and tassel, glitter attachment, mechanical movements. Oh, hell yeah. We got pop-up Christmas cards. We got pop-up Christmas cards in the Victorian era pre-1880. Damn. I say this to introduce you to a concept that I believe gets repeated so often, but the Victorians craved novelty. Yes. Which leads us to our first question. Why the fuck were some of the Victorian postcards like that? With like that in scare quotes. Is it because of their craving novelty? That is the most simple and encompassing answer. It's because they craved novelty. Louis Prang wasn't entirely... Well, he was never wrong. It was just the way he conveyed it that was extremely dickish. (laughs) People of all classes wanted art. They wanted to be stimulated. They wanted visuals. They wanted inspiration. And Christmas wasn't really any exception to that. And furthermore, Christmas hadn't had any strongly, let's just call them commercialized images of Christmas that people had come to associate with the holiday. Santa Claus had not yet been defined by Coca-Cola. Yeah, Santa Claus was there, but a lot of times he looked like an elf. And just smoking hot. Uh, not like a Lord of the Rings elf, but he, I uh, sure he could be. Like, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum here, sure. I'm just saying, Thranduil as Santa Claus? Consider, won't you? Thank you. Can you can't make Santa Claus more fuckable. He'll be too powerful. But like, I'm trying to picture the movie that he's in where it's just like Santa Claus as like, just decadent, decadent Santa Claus. Sorry, I'm lost in this fantasy now. Uh, oh, shoot, I gotta, <laughs> where was I? We gotta come back. Ken, bring me back. Christmas imagery was not yet standardized through commercialism. Okay, yes, thank you. So what you get as a result is people kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall to make a Christmas card. One of the things that we do know happened is that sometimes printers would just take a card they had in stock, like they had the image printed on it, and it would just be any novelty image, and they would print Season's Greetings on it. (laughs) 
to slap season's greetings onto any stock. Yeah, just onto <laughs> stuff they had that they hadn't put words on yet, or perhaps weren't going to until Christmas came around. So that's why how you get, like, army ants fighting, a beautiful image of lobsters sitting on the beach. Several Ice Age mammals linking arms and ice skating together. Yeah, that would just be a general winter image, and then they were like, well, oh, Merry Christmas. <laughs> a lot of just, like, beautifully illustrated animals. One of my all-time favorite postcards, period, of all time, is definitely the one where a boy is eating apples from a basket and a goat has rudely shoved his head in, and the text just says, I have come to greet you. <laughs> yes. Which was repurposed for Christmas, for Season's Greetings. But I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. Because it's very good is the thing. <laughs> it's so good. And that was just the Victorians loving nature. And that's half of the problem. The other half of the problem is that we're going to go right back to the Victorians have no established language for Christmas. And mixed with their sickening whimsy and stuff just sort of starts happening when an artist sits down in Victorian England and thinks, what will I make for this Christmas image? The dead birds in particular, I was really fascinated to find out, are a mixture of two things. A reference to an Irish good luck ritual called Wren Day on December 26th, where you kill wrens. Oh, yeah. The wren, the wren, the king of all birds on Stephen's Day was caught in the furs. Yes. Okay. So up with the penny and down with the pen and give us a penny for to bury the wren. Great. I have a note under here that says, I bet Ken already knows about this. Ring dum tilly dum tilly dum day. Uh, repeat as needed. Fantastic. You don't do Ren Day? <laughs> I did not know about Ren Day. In Portugal? <laughs> no, we don't. Actually, we don't. We just kill a pig and eat it like normal people. You know what? Fair. <laughs> And yet no ham salad. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't do this often. If you're listening, I need you to chime in and tell me if you've heard of ham salad. <laughs> because apparently I am the only man in Massachusetts who has consumed homemade ham salad apart from my father. When Ken said it was the first time the, the thought had hit me and I need to know if I'm alone there. So yeah, the imagery of dead wrens and robins specifically are actually a callback to Wren Day, which was supposed to bring luck in the new year. And again, until the language of Christmas had been fully developed, Christmas and the new year were kind of packaged together in the season's greetings. Another suggestion for dead birds that don't actually fall into the idea of Wren Day, because that is kind of species specific, is that it was probably, uh, quote, bound to elicit Victorian sympathy and reference common stories of poor children freezing to death at Christmas. And you know what? That scans. Yeah, they were kind of obsessed with that concept. So yeah, a lot of them were probably metaphors for like, isn't it sad that poor kids are dying? Anyway, happy Christmas. <laughs> Tis the season. Where's the Hallmark movie version of the Little Matchstick Girl? I think everyone sort of would like to forget that. And yet, I can't. And so I will be writing to Hallmark momentarily. I think my mom read me that book once not knowing what it was. Oh no. Like she had picked it up like any normal human being would have expected it to be like a nice story about a family that takes her in. Uh-huh. And it, you know, it would be like a Christian message about gratefulness or whatever. Uh-huh. And boy howdy, was she upset. Um... <laughs> That the end of the book is, and she died. That sucks. Goodbye. Merry Christmas. Put that on the chopping block with Christmas shoes. Where's my Hallmark movie of that? Didn't they already do one? I could have sworn they already did a Christmas shoes movie. Oh, and we're going to have a brief Google break, because <laughs> that would be too ridiculous to be born. Hot diggity dog. Holy shit. It is, in fact, a fucking real movie. Yes. I win again. I wish I were dead. I wish the Christmas shoes were my grave. <laughs> I mean, they're someone's grave. Ouch. God, I would endure a thousand Dominic the donkeys to erase Christmas shoes from human memory. So antiques. 
Other unusual cards would also feature foreign traditions and pagan traditions, which a lot of people find surprising, which they shouldn't. The end. A lot of really popular ones were like St. Lucia's from Sweden. Oh, hell yeah. Um, I think that's just because it's a beautiful tradition and looks very good in illustration. Light your daughter up like a Christmas tree. Yeah. Set your daughter on fire. Merry Christmas. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh, blessed St. Lucia's Day. <laughs> Another thing that I was delighted to learn is that an important part of Victorian Christmas was the Christmas pantomimes. Oh, God, yes. Which is why Christmas cards from the Victorian era are ruined with clowns. <laughs> Much like our Etsy shop at Etsy.com slash shop slash Consider taking some of these clowns off my hand, won't you? Thank you. So if you see a Christmas card that has otherwise unrelated clown hijinks on it, it is very likely that that for them was like seeing a sprig of holly. That was a Christmas tradition. Here's our Christmas clown. Merry clown, miss, everyone. Merry clown, miss. Oh my god. What? The clowns have big red noses just like Rudolph. Synchronicity. Ken, Harlequins didn't have big red noses. Oh, well, fine. I'm sorry. You know what? Maybe it is related. <laughs> the real Christmas clowns were the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Are you calling me a clown? And yet no objections to the Christmas. <laughs> Whenever you encounter an extremely fucked up Victorian Christmas card, half the time the answer is actually going to be because if you think it's funny, so did they. And that is really like the end of it. It's true. We did not invent humor in the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, I remember someone like telling me about like how funny that Christmas card with the frog stabbing another frog and stealing its money was. And they were like, what? What kind of drugs were there to think of that? And I'm like, well, you think it's funny. I'd be willing to bet a couple shillings that they also thought it was hysterical. Also, like a lot of cocaine wine. I mean- Which is wine with cocaine in it. There was some cocaine wine, yeah. <laughs> yeah, someone asked me like, why did so, many, so much Victorian imagery feature anthropomorphic frogs? And I was just like, because it's hysterical. Because you love to see a frog put on pants and do stuff. Like, that hasn't changed. <laughs> it's why Wind in the Willows is such a hit, and it's why Frog and Toad are Friends was such a hit. Yeah. Humans love frog wear pants. <laughs> yeah, when frog wear pants, human love it. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it to you more succinctly. When frog put on a little jacket and hat? Fantastic. <laughs> Excellent frog. Because not even just Christmas, postcards in general were actually kind of the way especially lower class people had art. If you didn't have the money to collect art or decorate with art, like postcards could become that for you. They could. And also, of course, scrapbooking, which is an evergreen hobby. And scrapbooks became sort of little mini art galleries where you could revisit all of the charm and artistry of these little paintings that you got sent in the mail for a shilling. A ha penny. I don't know. You know this better than I do. A hay penny? In the song, they say ha penny. Is that wrong? I mean... All the British people I've heard have said, hey, Penny. I trust them because they're there. But I've also never actually been there. So they could just be playing a big long distance prank on me. Dude, what if all of the British people you've ever heard talk were just clowning on you? I, did you know that there was actually a Victorian conception of Mother Christmas, by the way? Like a Mrs. Claus? No, she was called Mother Christmas. She was an alternative to Father Christmas, which seems to have been in most art from the time period, a distinct concept from Santa Claus. Interesting. Father Christmas was much more pagan. He sort of emerged from the woods to bring cheer. And it turns out there was also a Mother Christmas. Those uh, those are actually extensively rare and will make you a lot of money if you run across one. So Man, the Wiccans must love that shit. So I also, while I was doing the research, this ran into a very huge, very smug article about how far back the quote unquote war on Christmas extends. I mean, yeah. It goes back to the Puritans, at least. <laughs> well, easily, yeah. And, you know, they were citing the idea that when the Victorians conceived of the idea of a Christmas card, they were more secular than non-secular. 
Like, there were religious Christmas cards, of course, but they weren't as popular or as common as the non-religious ones. And so we have the opening salvo in the War on Christmas. It's not. I know. The Puritans started it. That was the Puritans. If you need someone to blame, there you go. And if you need someone to blame for bringing it back, check out the Unitarians. They sure do get up in the mix and then get forgotten immediately after. Well, because, all right, so Puritans got rid of Christmas because that was a bunch of papal nonsense, a bunch of frou-frou celebratory expensive nonsense. We're not having any of that. We're only wearing black and we're going to go into the woods to die. And then Salem witch trials happen and everyone's like, maybe we shouldn't be Puritans anymore. (laughs) At least in the Americas. (laughs) So slowly people are just like, I'm gonna just tell people I'm a Quaker. And then out of the Quakers, you get the Unitarians. And the Unitarians are like, all right, so here's a concept. What if we stopped hitting our kids? Bold. And to celebrate our bold new direction of not hitting our kids... We're going to try and make a relationship of mutual love and respect, and we're going to model this through the holiday of Christmas by giving our children gifts and having them give us gifts in return. And everyone was like, great, brilliant, fund it. And now we're here. (laughs) And I don't think this is what they had originally envisioned. (laughs) This isn't what anyone wanted. brought christmas back jesus wasn't really the reason for the season he really wasn't and and it's fine if jesus is the reason for your season that's perfectly okay that's perfectly fine but honest to god the reason for the season is frogs and little tweed hats it's frogs and little tweed hats and not beating your children that's what it's really all about <laughs> that's what christmas is all about <laughs> that's a christmas to me on my christmas cards this year should i just like Get out my best calligraphy and write Stop Hitting Your Kids Merry Christmas. If that's for your family, um, I think that that would be poor received. That might They might think of it as a suggestion that you think that of them. If it is for like, I was going to say work acquaintances, that's even worse. Um, <laughs> don't do it, I guess. What if these are to sell on my personal Etsy? <laughs> then absolutely do it, yeah. Could you also have a frog in corduroy pants and a hat and he's breaking a belt apart with his bare hands? Oh yeah, just splintering a switch over his knee, yeah. Yeah. Merry Christmas, stop hitting your kids. And then just like a little Unitarian Universalist chalice in the corner. Yeah, and then you can start your own cryptid about the child abuse frog that will come and beat you with your own broken switch if you hit your kids. Love it. Love this mythology we're building. (laughs) So that's Christmas. Yay! Now that you know a little bit about the history of Christmas in so many fun ways, do you want to collect antique and vintage Christmas cards? Oh, you know it. The good news is that this is one of my favorite categories in that the buy-in is very cheap for these. Hell yeah. And my other favorite thing where it tends to be easier to get these in large quantities, which is extremely fun. Because there are a few things humans love more than sorting large piles of things into much smaller, more organized categories. Yeah. If you've never known the joy of buying like a small lot of post cards and then going through them one by one reading what's on the back of them it's such a joy truly a delight think of it as antiques gotcha pawn it really is it really is you don't know what you're gonna get for christmas specifically the most collectible ones are considered between 1860 and the 1890s 
because that was when things really went off the rails. And you know why that is? Because printing technologies improved and literacy increased? Yes, specifically the advent of chromolithography. Oh. It was half the time of regular lithography and got very bright, vivid colors. So just visually, these tend to be everyone's favorites. Excellent. The ones from the 1840s to the 1860s are also very valuable, kind of historically. And they are very pretty and cool and interesting, but couldn't hold a candle to the chromolithography of the 1860s through 1890s. I mean, what can? Some people actually extend that to 1910, as they are still using chromolithography up until that point. But then it becomes sort of a matter of taste about what sort of designs you like. On a scale of 1 to 10, how many tweed frogs are we talking? They're tilting off by the 1900s. Disgusting. The Edwardians were freaks. Freaks, I tell you. (laughs) The closer we creep to the 1940s, the more and more saccharine things are getting. And like, the less novelty. Bleh. Because we are developing the language of Christmas. The language of Coca-Cola. Yeah, at some point Coca-Cola's gonna jump in there and make everyone only respect one jolly red man. Which is bullshit. Yeah, horse shit. I want pagan Thranduil coming out of the woods with a long white beard and antlers leading the wild hunt and taking me along with him for a magical Christmas reindeer ride. Okay, I think Ken just did the outline to a new romance novel, so that's cool. <laughs> Would you like to fund it? Write in antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Actually, I found out that one of the rarer and more desirable Christmas cards is actually what is referred to as Blue Santa, and it's just Santa and he's wearing blue. I'm here for it. This is also before Santa put pants on, so Santa's still in his Thranduil-esque robes. Uh Oh, Druid Santa. But in general, one of my other favorite things about postcards is that I'm not saying it's absent. There are absolutely brands and artists that will inflate the price of a postcard if it's present. But for postcards, the general rule of thumb is that their value is just on how pretty and cool they are. It's true. Which I know it frustrates some people because there isn't like a hard line, but I just think it's better. I think you can communicate something about yourself with your postcard collection that way by showing what you value. There is a grading system for condition, which is an extremely important factor about a postcard. And if you would like to reference that, I'm not going to go through all of it because we would be here for another whole episode. But uh, you can go to warwickandwarwick.com and they have an article on how to value old postcards where they run you through the professional rating system. Cool. In general, for condition, it's pretty intuitive. It's just how much damage it has. Some people do argue that not being written on or used is more desirable. I don't understand those people. I guess it's the closest to mint condition you can get with this particular collectible, but honestly, half the fun of it is like going through the personal histories of the people who bought and sent these cards. Yeah, I understand the logic behind it being more valuable, but like, it doesn't interest me. Yeah. So, you know, there's just there, there's that. But yeah, um, the factors to consider are generally condition, desirability of image, cross-collectability, and whether or not it has been signed by someone important such as the artist. Right on. As for dating postcards, that can actually be easier than other items. Because postmarks? There's postmarks, and those are very helpful for dating anything. (laughs) Especially me. (laughs) Wow. Show me a postcard and I'm yours. Honestly, shopping for postcards would be a pretty cute first date. It would. You know, go get a coffee and then go to a place that has big postcards and just show each other cool postcards. I feel like you would learn way more about another person doing that than other date activities. For example, do they have an appropriate appreciation for the little frogs and tweed hats? Exactly. And I think that's what all of your relationship should be based on. I mean, I can think of no other metric. You know why John and I get on so well? That motherfucker loves a frog in a hat. He certainly does. <laughs> a gentleman of taste. Yeah, that's how I know he's a quality good stock. <laughs> there are a couple other visual cues. The woven linen paper is pretty reliably pre-1944. 
when you get kind of a standardized stationary thing going on in the U.S. And the picture being framed by a plain white border is an advent of after 1915 due to advances in printing and how the printing stations work. But in general, I think postcards are the one object I have the least panic attacks when I have to date because there's just so many clues in the postmarking. It's true. Another beautiful thing about buying in groups is even if you have one that hasn't been postmarked, you generally have 40 others that belong to the same family that are. And comparison can be a very powerful tool for dating an object. It can. So that is the mystery behind creepy Victorian postcards and how postcards turn into Christmas cards. Huzzah! And why Ken hates Charles Dickens so much, despite being (laughs) the man who invented Christmas. Almost because he's the man who invented Christmas, but you know. He could have done a way better job of inventing Christmas, that's for sure. He could have instead titled it, A Not Beating Your Kids Carol. (laughs) But like, there's a comma before Carol and it's capitalized because it's Carol specifically who needs to stop beating her kids. Carol, listen. (laughs) (laughs) Sources for today include... Collectorsweekly.com, The War on Christmas Cards, History.com, which I did not realize was a website until today, Victorian Christmas Cards, Victoriana.com, Christmas Greeting Cards, VictorianWeb.org, Christmas Cards, Antique-Collecting.co.uk, Guide to Victorian Christmas Cards, Collectorsweekly.com, Cards, Christmas, and VAM.ac.uk, that's the Victorian Albert Museum, The First Christmas Card. And warwickandwarwick.com. If you have a book proposal for a romance novel featuring pagan Santa Claus, or as we call him, Father Christmas, you should email us, antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com, or post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you liked this festive delight, feel free to scroll on down to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leaving us a review of how you felt. And specifically, how you feel about Pagan Father Christmas riding in on his mighty steed to whisk you away. Yeah, how, how romantic do you find that image? I think it's pretty romantic. We also have our aforementioned Etsy shop at etsy.com slash shop antiquesfreaks, where you can find a wide variety of vintage goods and t-shirts and stickers with the podcast logo on them. Coming soon, more clowns, God help me. And if you need more Antiques Freaks in your week, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesweeks, where every week we produce a bonus episode reading and reviewing a chapter of the Penny Dreadful Varney the Vampire the Feast of Blood. The reason for the season. Honestly, Varney is my reason for the season. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. So much love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right. You. Au revoir. Goodbye.